Welcome to This Sustainable Life, Soul for Nature. Our guests are the heroes that are using science, engineering, and technology to save our world from climate change, pollution, and the destruction of our natural world. We hear their stories and solutions, and then offer them a chance to act, to take on a challenge to make their own lives more joyful and fulfilling through sustainability and living by their values. We focus on leadership, awareness, action, and the environment. We replace what I do doesn't matter with stories, meaning, purpose, and community. We hope that you join us in building a community dedicated to living better sustainably. My name's Eugene Bible, and this is This Sustainable Life, Soul for Nature. Hello and welcome everybody to This Sustainable Life, Soul for Nature. My name's Eugene Bible and I'm here today talking with Joshua Spodek. Josh, how are you? Very good. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I'm a little bit nervous that this is the first time that I've had to hit the record button for the purposes of doing a podcast, but yeah, I'm about as good as I can be given that situation. I know the feeling. Actually, until you just said this, I realized um this is this sustainable life, which began as leadership in the environment, started three years ago, almost exactly. Really? Yeah. Uh, before we hit record, you were saying that oh, this is the first time, and you you know you're thinking about that, and it just made me think of my first time. I committed myself to starting that month, that year in November, three years ago. And if you actually look at the timestamp of my launch, it was November thirtieth, like twelve fifty nine p.m. Or no, I guess it'd be eleven fifty nine. In like 30 seconds. Like I got it in just in time because I was so nervous. Wow. For the first time that you actually recorded it with a guest, how did you feel at that time, at the time of the recording? I recorded many episodes first. In fact, the first recording that I did was with someone who had done, I forget who it was, but someone who had done podcasts. And I started off really stiff and I didn't know what I was doing. And I forget what I, I was doing, what I thought you were supposed to do. I can't remember the details. And the person, was said like uh, let's stop 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 and we went back and we recorded from the beginning and he was like just talk and i didn't post the embarrassingly awkward original start and then i grew and learned <laughs> is that something you would ever consider posting i i mean i didn't say that recording oh okay I might, I might consider it now yeah because i'd want people to hear how what's the word awful <laughs> remedial it was <laughs> I know that you frequently talk about how much you can learn from your failures or how much your listeners can also learn from your failures or the failures of the guests on your show. So I don't know, that, would, might, that might be one big one to show everybody. Yeah, I don't use the word failure that much because for me, you know, I don't, use, I don't even use learning experience. Failure is just a label that people attach to an experience that assigns some sort of negative emotion that came out of it. But it's really, we're living and it's a part of life and, and we grow from these things. One of the reasons I really like having leaders on my show is that people who are experienced at leading others and themselves have inevitably crashed and burned many times. And so they're comfortable, they're more comfortable sharing their vulnerabilities. And I think people, one of the things driving my podcast is for people to hear the imperfections. Ever, all the solutions people bring out for environmental issues they're like, you know, we can do this, we can do that. We can, we can put this device in the ocean, it'll clean up all the plastic and uh, we'll make crickets into food and, and everything sounds like it's so all taken care of. And I find that 
when it comes down to it, when we do things that cause pollution, our imperfections come out and we, we think we prefer to hide these things. And it's much more effective to own them and to realize our, our flaws and, and the challenges we all face. It's the same with any addiction. If you want to quit smoking and you tell yourself, well, I'm not really, you know, it's only two packs a day. It's not really, I'm not really doing that much. Yeah, you are. If you, if you can't stop yourself, it's just hard to admit to ourselves that we can't stop ourselves and to realize that, yes, the withdrawal may be difficult. Mm-hmm. For me, it began with avoiding food packaging. It was difficult. I didn't know what I would do. And I really thought my food would cost more. It didn't. I thought it'd be less convenient. It wasn't. I thought it would be inaccessible to people in the food desert and therefore it would be, you know, I would have some privilege that other people couldn't do it. That was not the case. In fact, when I met people who are single moms in, in, in the Bronx, she was like, help me figure out how to do this because this is exactly what I've been looking for. And holding myself back held her back or held me back from helping people and, and, and bring this message out. So this is a long way of getting around to the value of people who can share these flaws and these problems. And it's not easy. And it, after you do it, you look back and say, I wish I'd done that before. And now that I've done it, it's easy. But the, the switch isn't easy. Staying there once you make the switch is, is easy. Yeah, agreed. And man, I think that that is probably just as good of any introduction to who you are as I could possibly give. But just really quick to give everybody an introduction that doesn't know who you are. Um, you are a professor at New York University. You hold multiple degrees. You've got a PhD, an MBA. You have spoken three times at TEDx. You're a number one best-selling author. You're the host of the award-winning podcast, Leadership in the Environment. You also don't buy any food in plastic packaging, just like you said. You've done over 150,000 burpees to date, and you haven't flown since 2016, and it takes you 16 months to produce one load of garbage. I know that you yourself don't consider that to be, I, I know you use the word extreme a lot, but to me, that's a pretty impressive feat. Do you not feel that way? Do you, do you not feel like it's a very impressive thing that you do all those things? Impressive? I, I mean, to me, they've become more, normal, more and more normal all the time. So pick any one of the, and, and also I'm glad that you described that as one thing because I think of it as an integrated comprehensive lifestyle that a lot of the things about the not flying, the avoiding packaged food, um, you didn't mention picking up garbage, but I pick up litter every day other people's litter. And that's all to me one thing. It's, it's taking responsibility for how my behavior affects others. And I can't really think of doing it any other way. Recently, and when I take on new challenges in that area, I've done it enough times that I've come to expect that the living by my environmental values will lead to the three words for me are joy, community, and connection. So with the diet stuff, when I change my diet to you know, I'm not, if I'm not buying packaged food, I'm not getting, I don't know, what comes to mind first is like frozen pizzas from the store and like heating them up because that comes in a box. That means I'm not going to get those things. What does that mean? It means if I want pizza, I got to talk to people about how to make a pizza crust, how to do it myself. And it turns out people do that. Actually, my mom's pizza crust is phenomenal. It's <laughs> the best pizza crust I've ever tasted. And, and actually, I, I helped her with it because she I don't like to eat food where fibers have been removed. So I want whole wheat crust, not, um, not non-whole wheat. But she makes a sourdough 
uh, that she says doesn't work with whole wheat. So we had to figure out together how to develop a whole wheat pizza crust with her starter. And it worked out. There was a, some experimentation and it worked out. And this is a microcosm for all the things. It always looks like a challenge, it always looks like it's gonna be impossible. I'm glad I mentioned smoking before because the way out of smoking, and I've never, I mean, I've smoked cigarettes in my lifetime, but I've never smoked more than like one in a month, mm -hmm. one in a year probably. And, um, and I can't imagine doing it ever again. That was just because, oh, maybe this is cool, right? You know, you're a little kid or you're going out to clubs or something like that. And you're like, oh, everyone else is doing it. Sure. Now that said, I think that the way out, if you're really stuck with smoking all the time and you want to stop is probably leaning on your friends and help asking them to help you finding other people who have kicked the habit before and ask them for help. It's not just saying willpower over everything. That's not going to work. Nor is it going to be like learning a whole bunch of facts. You're going to have to figure out to fill in. The, it's not just what you stop. It's what you replace it with. So yeah, when I hear no package, avoiding packaged food, what I don't think about is what I'm, what about all those chicken pot pies that I used to like when I was a kid growing up? What I do think about is the farmers where I buy my vegetables from at the farmer's market. And in particular, you can't see this right now, uh, but over to the left of me is some lettuce that I got for free. I, I have developed relationships with the farmers that I get all these free vegetables. And it's like the best stuff, but people don't buy some stuff because it's like maybe yellow or because uh, they buy the beets, but not the beet green. And the beet greens are super healthy and super delicious. So I get all this free stuff that, they were going to take back to the farm to compost. So again, it's not what I give up. That's what it feels like at one point. It's what I replace it with. And um, so if you talk about not flying, I think about how I rode my bike to Bear Mountain State Park and back. And even then, I rode my, my intent was to ride to my mom's house, which is about 100 miles away. And I was going to do my first 100-mile bike ride in, since the 80s. Well, I didn't count on a couple of things. It's hundred miles by car, but bikes can't take the freeway. So I had to take a different route, but then I found this very scenic route up the Hudson river. So now that makes the route more hilly than expected and 120 miles. So 50 miles in, I'm well over, I'm well under half the distance, but well over half the time. So I realized I'm not gonna make it there. Do I continue? If I continue, she's gonna have to come pick me up because it's gonna be in the dark in some areas where the roads aren't lit. Right. I could go take the train back because I'm not far from Garrison, New York, which is where there's, I know there's a train station there. Why do I know there's a train station there? Because I'm right by West Point. And I've had a couple, um, a couple colonels from West Point on my podcast. And I spoke there once invited by a, um, this four-star general. So I was thinking, oh, maybe I'll call <laughs> my friends at West Point and you know, have lunch with them and then take the train back. I thought, oh, if I do that, I don't want a bike. They're gonna, they will say yes, no matter what no matter what imposition it puts on them. So I'm not going to do that because I don't want to put them in a position where they have to say, oh yeah, Josh, I'll put whatever it is to the side yeah, absolutely. and come have lunch with you. So I just rode back home at that point. But in any case, that's a really cool experience is to ride my bike up and back through these beautiful towns along the Hudson. And then I just talked to one of the colonels uh, since then. And he said, oh, next time, come on up. Let's have lunch. Ride your bike up. And I'd love to meet you. So if I plan ahead, that will work out. So I've, I've improved my relationship with this colonel. Now I'm going to go back a step. This four-star general that brought me up to West Point, how did I meet him? I met him because when I was not flying, in the first, I think, year of it, 
my original plan was not to go for a long time without flying. It was to go one year without flying. Well, at that time, that felt like a super long time. And I thought, in this year of not flying, I thought, how am I going to make up for like this cultural exchange that I would, one of the things I would get from flying is to see different cultures. There's this woman, Frances Hasselbein. If you look up all my reading and stuff, you'll see, I mean, just look her up. She's one of the, Peter Drucker, who is one of the top leadership slash management writers of the 20th century, described her as the best leader in America. Bill Clinton honored her with the Presidential Medal of Freedom. She was the CEO of the Girl Scouts from 1976 to 1990. One of the main forces behind turning it from like, turning rich girls into wives, into turning whoever, whatever girls come in into whatever they want to be in life. Wow. Doctors and lawyers and all sorts of stuff like that. Or housewives if they want. And I met her and I realized, oh, she was born during uh, World War I. So she's, I won't say her age because she doesn't, she, that's not how people talk <laughs> in sure. Francis, you know, and, but you can, you can do the math and she's lived through the prohibitions. She's lived through the um, depression, World War II, Vietnam, all these things. And it occurred to me that she's from as different a culture as anyone, almost anyone in the world. I mean, I think of when she talks about service during World War II, and I think of the lack of service we have today into you know, not buying Hummers is like too much for many people. I think that's a different culture. So she, she splits her time between Eastern Pennsylvania and New York City. So I went out of my way to make sure I'd spend extra time with her. So I spent extra time with her and she's done a lot of work with West Point. And she put me in touch, my, in part because of my developing relationship with her, she introduced me with this uh, General Lloyd Austin who brought me up to West Point with him. And that developed my relationship with him. So my not flying has led to community and joy with West Point. So increasingly, I look at living by my environmental values. Anyone living by any of their values always improves their life. That's what value is like. Evaluate what's good, what's bad. Living by a value means bring what you think is good into your life. That will improve your life. If you think, oh, but what about all these things I'm going to give up? One of the big challenges in life is what you say no to. It's difficult when two things are kind of similar to each other. One's a little bit better for you than the other. It's hard to get rid of the thing that you value less. But when you do, when I have, I wish I, everyone, everyone I talk to, it's always the case. When it's really challenging to pick one thing that you like a little bit more than the other, but the other is really keeping you from enjoying that one. When you get rid of that other thing, it makes all the difference in the world. It, suddenly you realize, I wish I'd done that all, a long time before. This is exactly the right choice for me. What's his name? Um, not Charlie Munger, the investor. Uh, um, Warren Buffett? Warren Buffett, yeah. He talks a lot about the most successful people are the ones who do the least amount of things. Uh -huh. People who are split between many things don't get as much done. He's got a story about, I think his, I forget, some guy comes to him and says, can you help me? And he says, yeah, make a list of the top 20, your top 20 priorities. And the guy comes back, he's got the list. He goes, okay, split into two things. I think it's like the top three, maybe the top five and the next bunch. So the guy comes back and says, okay. He goes, okay, what do you think? Of, why do you think I had asked you to split into two lists? He goes, well, probably work on the top priorities. And when you have time, work on the others. Mm -hmm. He goes, on the contrary, work on the top priorities and the others under no circumstances, do you allow them to infect your business, your life? Do not do those other things. So to me, packaged food is just, most of it makes me feel disgust. Uh -huh. And there's no way I could have imagined how delicious broccoli and cauliflower and cabbage and apples and oranges could taste 
and I, I can't believe how delicious they taste. I, only by experience could I, if someone told me this years ago, I would have, no way would I imagine that I could have bitten into the cauliflower that I did recently and felt, been like, wow, this is really sweet, but your taste buds need time to recover and to pick up those nuances and subtleties. And that's why I'm so, my, why my technique is so little about telling people what to do and so much about helping people get experiences where they discover these things for themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I think that's one of the best messages of your podcast is that, you know, you're not just telling us what to do. You're living it. You're experiencing it. You're doing what most people consider to be sacrifices. And you're coming out of it with a positive experience that you can share with everybody. And that more than telling them what to do makes people feel like maybe I should try that too. Because I actually just did that today. Um, we were we were on a little bit of a drive, and we stopped at a little kind of a rest stop area. And I had to pick lunch. We were going to grab our lunch there, and I was walking around. They had like a small little farmers market kind of thing. A whole bunch of people just selling, just local people selling their vegetables. And I never ever would have walked up to that and been like, you know what? I think I'm just going to grab some cucumbers and, and a broccoli stock for my lunch today. <laughs> but that did enter my mind. I, I thought about how in one of your podcasts, you talked about how one time you had to eat just raw zucchini. Yes. I yeah. And then once you did it, you realized how sweet it was. Yeah. And that story came into my head and I said, they were selling these nice, big, fresh, broccoli stocks for only like the equivalent of like a dollar and I was just like all right I'm getting one and so I ended up getting one and yeah it was really good it was and it was something that I never ever would have done before yeah I and now I would think I would also want to meet the farmer and ask them you know did people come by I don't know what I'd ask I'd ask which are the best ones or you know man local farmers want to sell you food so much and so many of them are going out of business you know in the United States and they're struggling so much and they want us to buy their food and to buy packaged food is to me, it's like such a, a snub in the nose of them. And in my case, I have a farmer's market near me and I have a CSA that I can pick up near me. And I, I go to the ones where I have the best relationship and where the food tastes the best and the flavors, the connection with the land. I mean, my favorite food in the world is Thai food. In Thailand, in New York, it's garbage. It's, <laughs> it's, it's maybe some hint of Thai food covered with salt, sugar, and fat because they right. put way too much coconut milk on. And they put in probably generously, it, it might be fruit juices, but it's probably just straight sugar. And I would ask them not to put the stuff on. It's still too sweet. And so now I won't touch it. And now I'm not going to get Thai food in Thailand until I sail across the, the Pacific. Maybe sail across the Atlantic and take a long train ride. I'm not sure. But... Now I do look forward, that's gonna be some of the best food I've ever tasted because I will have sailed across an ocean to get there and that will be a <laughs> life experience to get there. And anyone who thinks I'm giving up on travel by not flying misses how much I can get from the bike rides and from the sailing and things like that. But I can't get fresh lemongrass here that was picked that morning uh -huh. or a lot of the ingredients there. So I can't really get Thai food here that's gonna be like Thai food there. Mm -hmm. I can get radishes that were grown here though. I can get things that were grown here. And 
this is one of the recent things that I, this is like six years into avoiding packaged food. And I'm, I'm just starting to pick up that the more that I connect with the local cuisine here, it actually gives me this, the, the meaning and purpose of other local cuisines. I might not be tasting those flavors, but I'm tasting flavors here that I wouldn't otherwise if I ate Thai food. So if the value is those specific flavors, I'm not getting that here anyway. And I guess I could get the stuff flown in that morning, but actually by getting the stuff here and connecting with local farmers, connecting with local cooks and things like that, and going to the farmer's market and be like, especially now it's December, there's, I can still get greens in the farmer's market. Late January, February, March, there's no greens left. So what am I getting? I'm getting radishes and turnips and beets and uh, things like that, parsnips. Going to the farmer's market then, when it's cold and no one's there, uh -huh. I mean, very few people are there. That's when I, I create local cuisine. I am actively participating in what, if I went to Thailand, I'm like, it's like going to the zoo <laughs> and looking at it from the outside because I'm not going to get the Thai food. I can't, I can't process that. I, I've had Thai food in Thailand that was, they're like, do you want Thai flavor? Do you want, it's like, do you want Western spicy or Thai spicy? <laughs> and I'm like, Western average for them is like too spicy for me. Sure. Well, I do like spicy, but I'm not going to get, I'm not going to get Thai food because you know, my dad spends a lot of time in India. The last time I was in India, and maybe the last time I'll ever, I don't know if I'll ever be there again, but we went to his friends, to their homes, and I got Indian food in their homes. It was so much better than what I got in the restaurants. Really? Oh, I was shocked. Yeah, I was like, because I took I happened to be there, it happened to be his birthday. So I took him to like the nicest restaurant in Ahmedabad or some really, I knew some people who, I don't know, I had some connections to some place. And, oh, this is amazing. It was a converted old uh, textile mill because Ahmedabad used to be a textile town. Huh. And that's what he studied. He grew up in Pittsburgh, which is a, a steel town. And so this Ahmedabad and Pittsburgh had a lot of parallels. So he studied this mm -hmm. place. So they converted this old place into a, a luxury hotel. And on the rooftop, there was a nice restaurant. And so it was like super expensive, which was like a dollar because <laughs> different prices. Sure. And as we're walking in, we're walking past, he's a historian. So we're walking past all these pictures of like the old, of, of the place as a mill. And he's looking at the pictures like, oh, he, he talked, he, he knows the people because he would interview them. And I was like, that's amazing. It, it brought things, it made things alive. In any case, yeah, I'm not going to get that home cooked. If I, if I, go, to, if I go to Thailand, I'm going to have to be there long enough to uh, get the experiences that I've never gotten here until now that I'm avoiding the packaged food. I'm not getting the stuff that's put together in some factory in Kansas and shipped out across the country like the pot pies and pizza would have been. And just to be clear, I ate a lot of ice cream. I really love Ben and & Jerry's. And I, I, I felt special about it because we went to a food co-op in Philadelphia. And the food co-op, we got Ben & Jerry's before Ben & Jerry's was big. We had it like years before. And it was like our secret. I mean, not as secret as if, if we were in Vermont, New, in New Hampshire. And Snyder's of Hanover pretzel bits. I always had Snyder's of Hanover pretzel bits. And I would eat them a special way because you get the stuff all over your fingers. The, uh, for people who don't know, it's like pretzel, broken pretzels and they put flavor on it. And the flavor is like this powder that comes off in your fingers a lot. So I'd eat it differently. I do remember that. I used to love the honey mustard but it's been years. Yeah, there's honey mustard and jalapeno and cheddar and um, I forget the different flavors. And yeah, when I talk about the cigarette stuff, 
that's what I'm actually thinking about. Cause I had to get, make all these rules to myself of like, don't eat more than a certain amount. And if I eat it, then I have to eat it a certain way because I know it's unhealthy, but I, but I couldn't stop myself from eating it. And I felt so terrible. I felt so full of guilt and, and shame all the time. Mm-hmm. And now if I eat too much salad, there's no too much salad. <laughs> you would have to eat quite a bit of salad to get sick, I think. I would, I would feel guilty if I didn't eat it, if I held back because it's so delicious and it's so nutritious and it fills you up. I've, I've eaten until I'm full. And then I'm like, oh, I can't eat anymore. I don't want it anymore. Sure. Whereas the other stuff I had to stop myself from, I had to force myself to yeah. stop. And so I'm living a life of, abundant, of abundance and more connection with people around me. You didn't take the opportunity yet to talk to the people, it sounds like selling you the broccoli. Uh-huh. But when you do, you'll find that they, they, there's a lot to talk about. Whereas if you talk to the McDonald's cashier, I don't know, I think they want to move you out of the way so you can, they can get to the next person. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, just hearing you describe that, the thing that immediately comes to my mind is that, yeah, if you think about it, a well-prepared dish is, is kind of like a very nice piece of classical music or something. You have so much going into one dish. You have so many things coming from different people and artists in their own fields that are all being combined together to produce something that is delicious and not just like something you get at McDonald's, which like you said, is salt, sugar, fat. Yeah, that's been more engineered. And which would be fine if it was engineered for my pleasure or my health, but those, they'll sacrifice that. It's engineered for, for quarterly returns. And if they have to sacrifice my health, so yeah. be it. They'll trick me into thinking it's healthy or at least not unhealthy. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's probably given us a pretty good idea of who you are as a person. So I would be really interested to now go back a little bit to see how you got to this point. I have read some of your book on initiative. I'm still working through it right now. But in your book, you talk about how much school and the education system fails people so much these days. And yet, you're a guy that has multiple degrees. You've got a PhD and an MBA. So first, I'd like to go back to that and want to know, at that time, what was your thinking behind getting the degrees and what degrees do you have? When I was a kid growing up, I could do well on the science tests and the math tests. At various times, I described myself as being into it, but it's not that I was into it. it. It felt like that was a natural way of looking at the world. But I also got picked on for it. And socially, it was a, it was a hit. Uh, it was a hit against mm-hmm. me. So certainly in high school, I would try to hide that. I would take the classes I had to take, but I wouldn't be like, hey, I love math. I love science. Then in college, I took a couple of classes in it in my freshman year, but then stopped. I, I took them because I felt as a part of a liberal arts education, you should take some science. But really, I had to get away from that because it was destroying my social life to the extent I had one. And then I took a year off from school. Between my junior and senior year, I took a year and lived abroad. Not taking, well, I ended up taking classes in French because I was in Paris, but it wasn't. Uh, my only goal when I went there was not to come back before June. That was my only goal. And I had to live on my own and figure out how to teach English and whatever it took to live with the family to, to stay there. And I came back with a measure of more confidence, more security. I was going to teach science and math. So I was taking classes. You had to, I had to take some science and math classes. And I had to take some sociology, psychology classes for, you know, some teaching mm-hmm. classes. I loved them all, but the, 
the physics classes were just by far the most challenging and therefore the most rewarding what I was learning. And eventually I said, this is what I love. I really love this stuff and I'm just going to go full bore into it. So second semester junior year, I picked a major that was, most people who major in it knew from high school that that's what they wanted to do. So that meant I had to go back and take all these classes that I was as a junior behind students who were freshmen and trying to catch up. But I totally dove into it headfirst with everything I had. I finished the major. I had to take some classes over the summer, just studying myself, like uh, ordinary differential equations. I just had to get a book and figure it out. And that's how I spent my summer, but I really loved it. Wow. So you spent your whole summer just learning ordinary differential equations. Yeah. One summer was ODE and an and early quantum physics class. Just a little bit of light summer reading, eh? You know, I want to contrast that between, I, I might've told you this in one of our conversations before about music, because I always think of my aunt Ellen, my mom's sister. They grew up on a farm in a small town in South Dakota. I don't remember the details, but I, I spent one summer with aunt Ellen's family in Nebraska and everyone in the family is super, uh, they play, they all play instruments. They all sing. They're very musical. I remember when I was a kid and my mom made me practice the violin, tears streaming down my face. I, I couldn't get it. So some things just looking back, how much I wish music had been a bigger part of my life actively, not just listening. Of course I like listening to music, but I couldn't actively participate in it. I couldn't do it. I felt I couldn't. And so this, this is something that came to me. Other things didn't come to me. But then when I got into grad school and the first year of grad school was brutal. My classmates were, especially from other countries where they didn't take liberal arts classes. I had taken 20 math and physics classes. I think the top person had taken 40. And most, I, there was one guy who had taken 19 and he dropped out. There's no substitute for experience in these things. So I barely made it. And so I was like catching up. And so that was really brutal, but I made it. I, eventually I caught back up and I was like on par with the rest. When I took my qualifying exam the second time, um, I passed it the first time just barely, but I took it a second time because I switched schools. And the second time I passed very well. And that was a PhD in physics that you were doing at that time? Yeah. But then when I started doing research, the research that I'd learned about growing up was like, I always think of the Rutherford gold foil experiment, which people might know about. Look it up on Wikipedia. But one of the big things that happened was they had, this, they had a, an electron beam hitting a gold foil and they were seeing how it would scatter. And just out of the blue, Rutherford says, put the detector over here in a place where it would not possibly, you couldn't possibly get a signal. And they got a signal. And this resulted in the discovery of the, of the nucleus and the structure of the atom being all the masses in the center. He just said like, oh, let's move it over there. And they did. Go to the LHC, the Large Hadronic Collider, and you want to move a detector? You're going to have to talk to like teams of tens of thousands of people from a dozen countries. And maybe 10 years from now, they, if you've, you devote your entire life, it might move like that. <laughs> so it's a different world. And it didn't look like there were going to be any big discoveries soon. You never know when a discovery is going to happen unexpectedly sure. because you can't tell. So I left the field. At the, it was in the mid-90s and, and some friends were, there was a whole entrepreneurship opportunity that we came up with. And so I went off to start my first company uh, to co-found it and based on an invention of mine. So physics, I knew a lot, oh, really smart, know a lot about numbers, but didn't know anything about running a company. Mm -hmm. So the company had its ups and downs. The technology side, we did very well, you know, getting the patents and developing the prototypes and installing these things. But then in the recession, uh, I got squeezed out by the investors. Mm. This was a very difficult experience, a brutal experience that I wouldn't wish on anyone, uh -huh. uh, except that if you want to succeed, I think you're going to have to go through experiences like that. How long had you been involved in the company at that time? 
let's see, I started the PhD program in 93 and got it. I wrote my thesis in 99 and was formally given the diploma in 2000. Okay. I had the idea for the invention in 96, filed for the patent in 98. So there's two years of R&D of like actually building a thing in the other co-founder's grandfather's garage, mm-hmm. literally like working in the garage. We got our first funding, I think in 99 and our first contract in 2000 mm-hmm. and launched in 2001 publicly. So 96 to 98, there's a lot of overlap between writing my thesis and defending my thesis and developing the technology. I would sneak over and take classes in the business school, not for credit because I, didn't, I wasn't sure if I was going to leave yet. So I'm just asking the professors if I can audit their classes in, in entrepreneurship. And then, so 98, 99, I'm like writing a thesis, getting funding, writing a business plan. Also that year I ran a marathon and competed at nationals in ultimate Frisbee. So that was a really busy time. Sounds like it. Yeah, I can't believe, but... It was a great time. And, and then, you know, was, then I didn't go back to physics until now I believe that what I'm doing with the environment and sustainability to me is as scientific as anything. Mm-hmm. I think that the role of a scientist today, I mean, look, if you want to study because you've seen the beauty of nature and you want to just explore the beauty of nature and a la Feynman, Richard Feynman, I'm not going to stop anyone from doing that. But if anything you do is about human life, I, I think making it understandable so people can act on it. Mm-hmm. This is, the, this is the only, this is the most important place to apply a love of nature and human understanding and relationship to right. it. So I believe that I'm now doing as much science as I ever did. I'm not publishing papers on it, but I think that if, I don't know, Galileo were alive today, this is what he'd be working on. Absolutely. So what was that transition period like? So after you got squeezed out of the company, and then you decided to start the podcast. I don't, I don't know how big that jump was or how much time there was in between that. How did you feel at that time? What caused you to want to go for the podcast? I signed away being um, CEO of the company in 2003. And then everything was lost because the industry I was in, I couldn't do anything there anymore. I couldn't go back into physics. I had no future. I couldn't see any way forward. Nothing. And in an odd way, the, the best thing for me was that I had to pay off my mortgage. I had to buy food and that meant I had to get a job. And so I went back, I went out in the working world and worked at a friend's startup for a couple of years and realized I gotta keep doing this. I gotta, I gotta keep doing my, I gotta start my own things. And I left my friend's company to start a new company, but realized I didn't know what a balance sheet was. Well, now I know what a balance sheet is. At the time, I didn't even know what that, there's so much that I didn't know that the best thing I could do would be to go to business school. Looking back now, I think my courses, my books, what you're getting in initiative, if that had been available, I wouldn't have gone to business school, but it wasn't, and I didn't know that. So I went to business school. Business school, I thought I was gonna have an easy time with like learning accounting and finance and what I thought was what business was about. Mm -hmm. There were classes in leadership that I'd never heard of. Business school is where I learned that you could learn these things. I thought. You know, I see Martin Luther King giving, you know, I have a dream and I'm thinking, there's no way I could do that. He must've been born with it and end of story. So I'm not a leader. <laughs> so I learned that you can learn these things. Now I let, I finished business school and started up the business that I left my friend's company to start as well as a couple other startups here and there. None of them really took off like my first one. And in the background, this leadership stuff was always like, what's going on there? How many other people could learn it that didn't think that they could learn it? And I also started learning more about project-based experiential active learning from a friend who started a school. Mm -hmm. And I thought 
and and he he got his degree in in education. He's got a master's in education, so he knew theory and practice. And I remember the first time he said to me, in his entire career, he gave one test, and that was a mistake. And I was like, how can you not give tests? How, what school without tests? That doesn't make any sense. And the more I learned from him, the more I realized the way that I learned leadership in school taught me leadership theory. Mm-hmm. We read papers, discussed case studies, but we didn't practice. And I didn't know how to teach by practice anyway. I mean, you, you can learn sports through practice. You can learn music through practice, but leadership, I didn't see that until I started talking more and more with my friend. And so I had this idea to do a startup, to start up a new school for leadership that would compete with the business schools for people who didn't, if you want to go into finance or consulting, uh, you know, one of the business school MBA places, sure, go there because you're going to get a great network. But if you wanted to be an entrepreneur or wanted to go into not, you know, megacorp where they want the NBAs, I saw a big opening. So I was going around Manhattan to all the incubators saying, I'm going to start a school for leadership. And how about I start by being a value add for you guys? Because a lot of your founders are going to be like I was before, and they're going to go through a lot of challenges that I did. And I can teach them, I can teach them leadership skills. So I'm getting a little traction. One of the people I spoke to, I didn't realize this, the incubator was joint between NYU and New York City. I'm talking to a guy, telling him what I just told you. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize he ran a program at NYU. And like, I'm just in the middle of talking, it points his finger in my face and he goes, I'm going to hire you. <laughs> and I thought, my first thought was, you're the competition. You, you're probably going to teach the old way. And I don't think that's effective. But the more I spoke to him and I, you know, I went and visited and, and I realized I could develop my technique in teaching there. And he was going to give me a fair measure of autonomy to teach the way I wanted to teach. And I thought, okay, I'll teach within NYU for a while. So the goal was to develop a program in teaching leadership at NYU. And then ideally maybe split off on my own and do it by myself mm-hmm. or grow a department. I'm not sure. And unintentionally, not something that I ever expected to be something professional was that I noticed how much pollution I was causing myself. And at the time, if you had asked me, I would say only governments, only corporations can make a difference. Maybe an individual can come up with the technology that would really reduce pollution, mm-hmm. but that would be rare. And the best thing we could do is vote. And the best thing we could do is hope that technologies would, would solve a lot of these problems. And then I looked down at, at my own garbage. Maybe governments should change other things, but this garbage, my, this is mine. And no one can take responsibility for it but me. Mm-hmm. And so I challenged myself, could I, go for, could I go for a week without buying any packaged food? Thinking a week-long experiment. And you know, I've given myself challenges like that before, of like avoiding hydrogenated oil and avoiding um, corn syrup. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, what I thought was going to be a brutal, horrible experience of dep- depriving myself of delicious foods and forcing myself to buy expensive stuff was the opposite. And you heard me talking about food already. So that change came from that little experiment of mine. Right. I realized that once I started experiencing that joy and that deliciousness, and that it was the opposite of what I expected. It was the opposite. And why did I expect that? Because I bought into what everyone told me about technology will save us. And it's horrible. It's a horrible deprivation and burden to not go full bore on buying into the system of, of petrol growth and so forth. I thought not stepping on the gas on that would make my life worse and it made it better. So it occurred to me that I had a combination of, of understanding of nature, entrepreneurial experience, leadership experience, that is a mix that I don't see many people have. Almost anyone has. And I thought 
I got to bring leadership to the area of the environment. I got to bring it. There's no Mandela of the environment. There's no one who's saying you're going to like this and not just saying everyone. The, the message I got from everyone is you're not going to like this, but we have to do it. It sucks. Yes, it really sucks, but we have to do it. And suddenly I was like, it's awesome. And we get to do it. No one's setting, spreading that message. And I really, that's the message I want to bring to the world, not just in words, but in experience. And I believe that that will, that community will spread this more than anything. That was a long answer. No, that's okay. No, that was a great answer. The, the methodology that you use in your podcast that you use to uh, talk to people and to offer them the opportunity of taking on an environmental challenge, is that something that you had already very well thought of before starting the podcast? Or was that something that you kind of evolved over time? Well, I developed it before the podcast, but not for the podcast. All right, so I did these things of, of avoiding packaged food, avoiding flying, and I really liked them. And then my first foray into trying to lead others was to, this was, I was still at NYU, so I got a bunch of past students and current students and friends and colleagues. And I did a series of talks at NYU in which I was lecturing on the environment and it didn't go anywhere. In fact, it engendered more pushback and stopped lecturing at me, and, you know, stop telling me what to do. And I already know this and that didn't work. And then later I'm talking to a friend, actually a former student who I was telling him about how I pick up garbage every day. And we were going on to other things. And out of the blue, he goes, yeah, I'm going to give that a shot. I'm going to pick up 10 pieces of garbage a day for 30 days. I didn't ask him to do that. And at the end of 30 days, I said, how'd it go? He said, oh, it's great. At the beginning, I felt like weird picking garbage up. But at the end, I felt weird passing it by without picking it up. And he said he felt so good about it that he researched and found that the best thing he could do besides that would be to change his diet. So he cut his meat intake by half. And he's a weightlifter, so his macros, he had to work on this. It wasn't like a trivial thing for him to do. That was what really got me to the podcast was I wanted to walk people through an experience like he had. At the beginning, I was pretty clumsy at it. The early episodes, I, I was not effective. And then I realized me telling people, here's what to do, doesn't work. And even me having them think of something for them to do doesn't work. If you look at unit four of my book, A Leadership Step-by-Step, Step, which I've been teaching, mm -hmm. it walks through how to find out what the person cares about, bring that out and ask them to act on what they care about. And when they do something because they care about it, whether it's big or small, is not as important as if they care about it, then they'll do it again. And if they do it again, eventually they'll do it big and they will share it with others. So I'm not going to argue with people that little things don't add up. Maybe they will. But big things that people share, that definitely adds up and it adds up a lot faster. So when people say, here's one little thing you can do for the environment, I, I cringe when I hear that because you don't tell people, here's one little thing you can do when they, you know that they're going to love it. No one says, you know, like drinkless driving Mondays. If you're not going to drink and drive, like never drink and drive. There's no seatbelt Tuesdays. Always wear your seatbelt. Right. It's not like try wearing your seatbelt sometimes and see how it works out. Just always wear it. Right. Because people care about their lives. You can take for granted that people don't want to die. Mm -hmm. With the environment, what they connect with, it's going to be unique to them. But when it comes out and they act on it, they really like it. So that emerged. It was kind of a discovery after I don't know how many episodes. I was like, oh, wait a minute. I can just do that stuff I've been teaching. Why didn't I? And that's a kind of slap your forehead moment. What I say works, works, even here. There's nothing special about the environment that it's like, it trumps other things on how to, how leadership works. Yeah. And I think for a lot of people, just that, that connection between the things that you do and the impact that it has on the environment is so disconnected. It's so hard to see, you know, we don't see when we flip on that light switch, we don't see like 
exhaust coming out of the back of your car. You, mm -hmm. when you press the accelerator on your car, you see that smoke coming out of the back of your car. You can, you can kind of, even if you don't really know exactly what it does to the environment, you can kind of have a sense. It kind of smells bad. It looks bad. It looks gross. But with turning on your lights, the effect is so far away that it can, I think, be really hard for a lot of people to kind of be able to realize how much of an impact that actually has. Yeah, that's one of the, when I say I have a science background, it's so helpful. It's an understanding of nature. So in physics, conservation of energy is, is like, that's as fundamental as it gets. And once, I'm mean, certainly by the graduate level, and undergraduate level too, it's just conservation of energy is, is just, it's one of the most beautiful things. It's, it's, it's symmetry. And of course, when I turn on light switch, I'm connected to the grid and there's going to, it increases the amount of coal being burned. That's going to be mercury in the fish and so forth. And I tell that to people and they're like, really? I'm thinking, did you think you were going to slip through? Like, you know, your air, air conditioning was somehow benign or they think like, well, someday there's going to be solar powered, whatever. And so this one doesn't really count. It counts. That's not a problem. That's actually a beautiful thing. I mean, I can't express how beautiful the conservation of energy is when you really get it. And to think that that means that that connects you with someone on the other side of the globe, that connection, this is something else I, I, I could have talked about before and also I'll mention now. Mm -hmm. I feel more connected to them by my not polluting than by going and visiting them and trying to explain away how some offset means that I've assuaged my guilt, right. but actually haven't made the world any cleaner. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not going to get into carbon offsets, but the, the net effect of them is to increase pollution. And anyone who wants to, anyone who disagrees, they can contact me. <laughs> but actually they can look, the research is all out there. I didn't make it. I didn't do any original research here. I just saw what was there. And you have to. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's kind of putting a Band-Aid on a problem rather than actually fixing it. So doing this whole leadership methodology, you've now accumulated, what, well over 400 episodes now. Yeah, I think I did 416, and they're all my favorites. <laughs> yeah, a lot of them are really, really good. I'm still working through them. I've probably only listened to about 40 or 50 of them, and I pretty much always have one or two of them on my uh, smartphone to listen to when I'm riding on the trains and things. But you've now come to the next step of going from your podcast to now wanting to start this new project, This Sustainable Life. So could you tell us a little bit about what it is? What is This Sustainable Life? Yeah, the, so when I started Leadership in the Environment, I was just like, uh, what do I name this thing? Well, it's about Leadership in the Environment. I, I, I couldn't come up with a better name. And I don't think it's a horrible name, but it's, it's a mouthful. And after my third TEDx talk, a bunch of friends that I would talk to about sustainability, a team formed. Uh, each of them was like, this is this third TEDx talk is like on another level. And it's, I hope people watch it. I hope you put the link up for it. Absolutely. And they said, we, we got to get this out there. And I said to each of them, want to do something? Want to participate? And they all said, yeah. So we brought, got them all together and we, a team formed. And together we came up with a, a new name, This Sustainable Life, which I think flows better. You know, at first I was like, I want to keep the old one. But then I was like, this is better. So we're, we're doing, we're shifting the brand. I've long known that I'm going to reach only so many people. Even if I became Joe Rogan famous, I'm still only reaching millions of people. Mm -hmm. And there's billions have had to change their behavior. So I'd always wanted to reach audiences that weren't going to be connected with me was to reach people. Like I'm, 
I'm well-educated. I like to get TED people. I like authors and I like sports. Um, I live in New York City. So these are a lot of things about me. But what about someone who's in another country, speaks a different language, or isn't into the things that I'm into? They're not going to listen to my podcast, but they still care about the environment. They still care about the air that they breathe. So I always wanted to get to find other people to start new offshoots, new branches of the podcast and make it their own so that they could become leaders in their world and lead the leaders who want, I believe that everyone wants to embrace a, um, a more sustainable lifestyle given the world that we live in. And so let's see, someone start leadership in the environment. Now this sustainable life, Sweden was the first one to start. Mm -hmm. uh, then one started out of the UK, one started out of Italy and there's you in Kyoto, but, or near Kyoto, I think, if I remember right. Yep. And soon to be Hawaii or possibly somewhere That's else. That's right. We're going to be moving soon. So. Although yours is more, yours is more not geographically based, but interest based. So it's applied science. So that's going to, you know, people can reach it in different ways. Someday there's going to be someone who starts like this sustainable life, Hollywood, and they're going to get all the superstars or this sustainable life, hip hop, and they're going to get all the superstars. <laughs> or someone's going to look at it and say, there's this whole family here. Let's build something on another level than Josh ever conceived of. Great. Outdo me. <laughs> if, the, if, if the result is more people looking, making the switch that I did from Ben and Jerry's to apples and fruit, it would be from scenarios of Hanover pretzels to broccoli, you know, the sweet and the savory. Mm -hmm. And if it brings that to others, that people are stopping at the farmer's stands and then they don't have, there's no reason for them to go to the packaging store. Like, I think Trader Joe's is just, I, I would bet by weight, they sell more packaging than food. <laughs> you might be right about that. And probably uh, Whole Foods, same thing. Apparently some huge percentage of the, of the vegetables that people buy at these places is aspirational. They buy it and they don't know how to cook it. They don't want to do with it. So they end up, they look at the broccoli and they're like, what do I actually do with this? And they're like, oh, let's just get a pot pie again. Or, you know, let's just order in. And then they at best put it in the compost, but more likely throw it out. And then they call me privileged because I shop at a farmer's market. <laughs> Getting the food that, that the farmer was going to compost. Yeah. Well, I hope that with this podcast, we can all do you proud here. We're going to try to do what we can. I can't wait to see where you go with it. Yeah, I'm excited. I would love to see scientists activated, not just to tell people, here's the data, but to show them this is how I've changed. This is what I do with it. So I can't wait to see where you go with it. Well, I can't make any promises. I'm still on episode one, but I'm going to do everything I can to make that dream a reality. So um, I want to respect your time here and I want to be sure that we get to everything we need to get. And so I would now like to use your own methodology on you and offer you a choice to take on an environmental challenge. If you don't mind, I would like to start that process right now. Music to my ears. Excellent. Although I'm going to, I'm going to, I apologize for doing this like on air, but you're saying to walk me through a challenge, but I like to say to give you a chance to act on one of your environmental values. Got it. The challenge is like the side effect. It's the value. It's the passion. It's what the person cares about. You're going to give me the opportunity to act on a value of mine. Yes. Thank you. All right. Then let's get into that. Let's do that right now. So the first thing that I have to ask you is, do you care about the environment? Yes. <laughs> okay. Thank yes, I do. God. I think after we just had that whole discussion, if you didn't care about the environment, we might have a problem. Um, so then I would ask you then, what does the environment mean to you? Not what it is, but 
everybody has a unique experience. And so to you, what does the environment mean? Yeah, it, I mean, if you'd asked me that a long time ago, before all of this stuff began, at best, I would say, I mean, I always cared, you know, a walk in the woods clears the mind. There's a lot of things to connect on. Since then, over the past better part of a decade, it's become so much more, it, it's, it's every, everything. All my relationships, not all, but most of my relationships with people around me, it's based on enjoying nature and that experience. I knew that you would ask me this. <laughs> and so I was thinking about some of the things and something that's been missing for a while is, well, I have these, right now I have two plants over there on my windowsill. One is a basil plant and one is a, uh, a cherry tomato plant, or no, uh, not cherry, a regular tomato plant. And I've just been thinking about people don't have life in their world. It's wonderful to interact with life and having living things around me. You know, people have pets, people, there's other people and so forth, but plants are like a pretty, it, it really gives back. It recharges me. So of all the areas that I could talk about, this is one that watering plants, seeing them grow, it, it changes the pace of living. It's very easy in New York City to get caught up in like rushing everywhere, even during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. When another creature depends on you, you have to live on its pace. Watering plants, watching them grow. When those tomatoes grew after months of watering, they tasted so good. <laughs> I don't know how to wrap this part up into a bow, but it's that interacting with life is invigorating. It, 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 it gives me life. How much do you interact with life yourself on a day-to-day -day basis? Do you maintain your own garden or do you have something that you do on a daily basis? Good question. I mean, the, the main thing is through the food and which I guess in some sense is killing the life because the carrot was alive. And now, I mean, if I'd stuck the carrot in the dirt, it would grow and instead it's going into my belly. <laughs> I don't have any pets. And over the summer, the, the tomato plant wasn't pollinating because it needs insects. Oh. And you, I can shake, the, shake it as much as I want, but it wasn't pollinating. Oh. So I took it up to my roof and I don't like using the elevator. It took me a long time to do this. And if you listen to my episode with Joe DeSena from uh, the Spartan Race, it, it's inspired me to walk up. So I'd walk up 11 flights every day, 11 flights down to water my tomato plants up there. And it pollinated. Huh. And it's funny because 11 flights up to the insects make it up there. Yes. You can hear this joy. It's like, it's a discovery. So then it was every day I'd walk up and down 11 flights and sometimes twice. And the walking up is in a shadowy staircase inside the building, but I'm doing it for this little plant. And I'm really doing this plant because I, wanna, I do want to garden on the rooftop. Mm -hmm. So before I grew my own plants, I didn't think much of it. And then once I started, once you do a couple, then you start doing more. Once I started doing, a few, and that, again, this connects me mainly with my sister out in Queens. She gave me a few plants to start off with, and I would ask her about tips and things like that. And then my mom and stepfather, again, community connection every time, joy. I want to go to my building and get some planters. Some, I want to plant some serious stuff up there because there's a whole side of the building that there's pipes and things that people can't go there for safety reasons. But I bet I could get some planters up there to grow more than just a few decorative plants, the few decorative plants that they have up there. So I want to increase it. Then when I walk around my neighborhood, I don't even go out of my way to look at the trees. In the springtime, I know where the, there's a few berry trees around where I live and elsewhere in Manhattan and nearby. And I go to town. Oh, you haven't heard me talking about the mulberry trees and the Juneberry trees? No. Talk to me in June, man. It's like, <laughs> I, I, I just, I mean, first of all, I'm at the trees and the trees produce so much fruit. 
So I'm sitting there like, blah, 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 stuff in my face <laughs> with them. And they're super healthy. I mean, look up berries and nutrition and they're super healthy. The mulberry trees, there's a tree in Manhattan. I'm not going to tell you where it is. <laughs> and I'm picking the mulberries and, and filling the containers. And I'm, my feet are slipping around as if I'm standing in snow because there's snow, so many mulberries that are on the ground because the trees are really big. And people have no idea. And it's super delicious. And I feel like a king. Does no one else go out there and, and eat them? Are you the only person that you've ever seen that, that takes the berries? At that tree and other trees, yeah. And I, I try to do it secretly because I don't want like 8 million people to figure it out. If you go online, I think there's, there's tours of like foraging tours of Central Park, for example. I think they find mushrooms and things like that. Oh, wow. And there's some, um, I know places where, I found places where they have different herbs that are edible that are, I don't know if they're native, but they certainly grow around here. So December in New York, it's really the farmer's market is where my direct interaction is. Well, I would imagine even with, with the tomato plant, like you, you can see the joy that you talk about just talking about that plant. I imagine that that feeling probably started just as something that you did for the plant, right? Having to walk up the 11 flights of stairs or for the, uh, for the plant. But is it accurate to say that it was something that you started doing for the plant, but slowly learned to feel joy or experience joy for yourself in the achievement of that? Well, the plants, I mean, that particular plant experience was more about exercise and, and my relationship with Joe DeSena, founder of the Spartan Race. I knew it's not hard, mm -hmm. but I, I hadn't done it. So it was really just starting myself. Right. I knew there was something there. I just hadn't done it. So it's the, the joy of just experiencing life anywhere you can find it in your day-to-day -day life. Yeah, although the, the direct experience was I knew that acting on that value would improve my life. I knew that if I put the time in, it would pay itself back I, from experience. I knew that. Right. Yeah, because it's something you've done multiple times, I think, in your case, right? Yeah. So now, based on that feeling, and this is completely optional, but can you think of something that you could do to act on that feeling? It doesn't have to be the biggest thing. It doesn't have to be the most important thing. You don't have to solve climate change overnight. But I do ask that it be a new behavior. It can't be just telling other people to do something. It can't be something that you're already doing has to be measurable and something that you do yourself. Is there anything you could think of? Yes. And in, in this case, I, I knew that this was coming uh -huh. and, uh, and I've been thinking about it. It's very easy to think there's all these other, there's all these things I'm already doing, but then I love the challenge. And what hit me was that over on my windowsill, I have empty flower, uh, I don't know what you call them, uh, containers filled with dirt. And in fact, once I saw a neighbor throwing out, I have a big bag of, it's called, it says black gold and it's, um, <laughs> it's compost or not compost, but you know, really good fertile dirt. And it's just been sitting there. And next to these things are several containers of seeds. They're just sitting there. Like all I got to do is put the seeds in the dirt and water them. I already watered the other two plants. And, and I, it occurred to me, I keep thinking like, oh, I'll, just, I'll, I'll plant them soon. I think over a year has gone by that they're just sitting there and I'm like, this is it. This is my chance. I'm going to go plant those seeds and get these plants to grow. Is December the best time to do it? I don't know. I'll find out. <laughs> Excellent. That's awesome. That's an awesome idea. I like it. Yeah. So uh, what we want to do now is we want to make it a smart goal that is 
a specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, time-bound goal. So how much are you going to do for how long or when will you do it by? Oh, that's a good, yeah. So I'm, I'm turning around to look at how many containers I have and what seeds I have. So I guess that I will, uh, let me look at my schedule to see what I can do today. Yeah, I think I should be able to do it. So before I go to sleep tonight, I'll plant, I guess I'll plant those two planters. I got a bigger container. I'm going to put that one off until later, but I'm, I'm, the two planters that I've used before that are in the windowsill, I'll put seeds in those and water them. And then once that starts, then I'm going to water them every day because it's part of my morning calisthenics routine. It's like to water the plants. Great. And that'll just be part of what I do. Right. And then how long it takes them to grow? That's up to them. Well, that's excellent. That sounds like a pretty good goal. And I would love to. So I don't know, but just to make sure, yeah. I'll keep watering them at least a month because it's possible they don't grow. It's possible I broke the seeds or something like that. So I'll commit to at least watering them a month. I mean, I've planted these seeds before and it's always worked, but I don't know, maybe it's December and it's a long time, but I'll do it anyway and learn from my mistakes if I get it wrong. So you'll plant them today and for one month, you will water them every single day. At least one month, yeah. If they start growing, I'm going to water them until I eat them. They're edible plants. Sure, absolutely. Okay, well, I would love to hear how that goes. So if it's okay with you, I'd like to schedule another talk in another few weeks or few months to discuss it. How long do you think it'll take until you feel like you'll have a meaningful experience that you can talk about? I'm pretty sure that they grew in a few months. And I think that they'll grow independent of the weather outside. You know, they're not going to get as much sunlight because it's December and the sun's really low on the horizon. Uh-huh. I would guess, let's say two months. Okay. There should be something coming out and um, I will have bitten off some of those. These, these are salad greens and they're this one of them is, I think mustard. Some of them are like super spicy, uh-huh. like can't keep it in your mouth. So it's so flavorful. Wow. So hopefully I'll get one or two of those. Excellent. Then as soon as we are, uh, as soon as I stop recording, I will go ahead and send you that invite. And I'm really looking forward to that second talk. I'm excited to hear how it goes. And I'm hoping that by then, I will have at least a few more episodes under my belt. I predict you will. And I wish I'd done this a long time before. And I feel kind of silly that I hadn't done it before, that it's gotten to this point. And so I'm really glad that this is good. I have a, I have a, I have a reason to do something I've been meaning to do for a while. And I hear guests of mine say that to me all the time. And I think that listeners will appreciate uh-huh. The feeling of, huh, I bet there's stuff that I should be, that I've been meaning to do and haven't done. It's our whole culture is that way. They've been, we've been feeling that way for decades now. Right. And it's really a joy to discover these things that have been lying around. Oh, it's just putting the seeds in the dirt. Yeah. Putting some water on it. Well, how, how have I not done this? Yeah. And I, I think especially these days, they're just, there's so much messaging out there for, for all the things that we should be doing. And, and some of it resonates with us, some of it doesn't. But the stuff, even the stuff that does resonate with us, it just kind of sits at the back of your head and you kind of go, I'll get to it eventually. But it's really hard to get that, the, uh, the initiative and the motivation to just do it. My definition of leadership is helping people do what they wanted to do, but haven't figured out how. Right. If they don't want to do it, that's not leadership. Getting them to do, that's coercion. If they want to do it and they know how, well, hopefully they, they don't need a leader, but if they want to do it and they haven't figured out how, then a leader steps in and can help them achieve a goal that they meant to do. You led me into, in this case, the, the, the physical thing I'll be doing is planting these seeds and watering them, but it led me to act on something that I knew would improve my life and it just was putting off. 
And I hope that I'm going to be able to do that for a lot more people in the future. And I hope for my end to hear about it and to see you doing things that I wouldn't have thought to do. That's already happening with the other podcasts that they're reaching people I never would have and take going in directions I wouldn't have. And I listen to some of those episodes. I'm like, ah, why don't I do that? Right. So I look forward to that happening. Yeah. I'm excited. I, I, to be honest, I still had a lot more questions that I wanted to talk to you about. I, there's, I had a whole bunch of things that I wanted to ask you, but we didn't have time to get to it today. Hopefully I'll be able to get to that a little bit next time. It was really, really good to talk to you today. Same here. Uh, thank you for organizing it, making it happen, taking the initiative to, to start it all off and keep me updated. Not at all. It was my Please. pleasure. It was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that. Thank you very much. Thank you. Joshua Spodek is the leader who's showing us all that living in a way that is sustainable isn't just about making sacrifices. It's about learning to live your life by your values in a way that's more joyful, fulfilling, and connected. When you change your life to live by your values, you end up creating more happiness and joy, more community, and better relationships with everything around you. Be sure to go check out more of Josh's stuff like his podcast, blog, and TEDx talks by going to joshuaspodek.com. I'm really looking forward to hearing about how Josh's challenge goes, and I'm also really looking forward to interviewing more guests who are fighting to bring our lives into better balance with nature. Be sure to hit the subscribe button to know when new episodes go live. Thanks to everyone out there for tuning in. Until next time.